Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented small law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through the Lawyerist Lab and Accelerator. And now, here are the co-authors of The Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast hosts. I'm Laura Briggs. And I'm Stephanie Everett. And this is episode 287 of the Lawyers Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Brad Stuhlberg about how to leverage passion the right way. Today's podcast is brought to you by Postali, Back Office Betty's, Case Text, and Text Expander. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support, so stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. So, Laura, today we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics. Virtual LabCon. Virtual LabCon. Yay. It's coming up faster than you think. I know. I was thinking about that this morning. I got to get to work. So I know our longtime listeners have heard us talk about LabCon before, which is our in-person conference that we typically do twice a year. Unfortunately, this year, in 2020, we've had to make that go virtual because of the pandemic. But we did it in March. Honestly, we did it in March on about 48 hours notice. So that was a little crazy. But now for the September event, I have tons of time to plan, and so I'm super excited because I'm going to be able to be a lot more thoughtful and throw a lot of fun things into it. And I think what's important to note is even with what we did in March, that this is a very engaging and interactive event. I think part of what people get out of LabCon is not just hearing from presenters or learning about different topics or new software or tools that we've developed for them. But there's also that opportunity to network with the other attorneys inside lab or attending LabCon. And we've been able to use technology to our advantage with that too, using breakout rooms with Zoom. There was a lot of talking back and forth and coordination and collaboration that happened with attorneys at our last LabCon. And I imagine that's probably a theme that's going to be carried through to our fall event. Oh, for sure. We always tell everyone we took away everything we hate about events, which are boring speakers who talk at you. And so it's really designed to be engaging conversations from people in the room. And I think the best compliment we got in March was one of our labsters told me, honestly, I thought this event was going to be a total bust and you completely proved me wrong. It was awesome. And you actually modeled how you could do an awesome virtual event, which just obviously made my heart sing. Yeah, and I think it was really successful, and we had great turnout. A lot of people realized that they were going to have to make travel plan changes and things like that, but still had it on their calendar to attend LabCon and stayed true to that commitment. And I think that's another part of this, too. If you're not taking regular time out of your business to do that big picture visioning and strategy and analyzing numbers and where you've been at to this point, that can actually hold you back. And it feels like in the year of a pandemic, taking that time to step back and figure out what's next is possibly even more important than ever. Absolutely. And so the event is limited to our lab community and special invited guests. If that's something you've been thinking about checking out or would like to see, then let's talk. I'd love to tell you more and see if it'd be a good fit for you and for where you are with your business right now. Now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Jim Christie from Postali and then my conversation with Brad. Hey, my name's Jim Christie. I'm the CEO at Postali. We are a marketing agency that works only with attorneys. 
Welcome. I know that marketing is something, especially when it's being outsourced, attorneys really tend to struggle with because there's so many questions and they want to make sure that it's a good ROI and they want to make sure that the marketing company is qualified. So what do attorneys need to know before they even call a marketing vendor? So something that I experience a lot because I handle a lot of the intakes on our side is that many firms just aren't ready to have the marketing conversation yet. So what I'm really going to talk about here is have some baseline understanding of what you're looking for. Know your outcome before you go in, because otherwise I think you're going to get led astray and you're going to get sold a product that you may or may not really need. So things to think about, what types of cases are you looking for? Be specific about that. Don't just say, oh, I'm looking for more criminal defense cases. Be specific about what type of offense. Where do you want to get them? The physical location of where do you want them to come from? You're a certain county, a state, multiple jurisdictions, all that fun stuff. How many do you want? Like the very common answer is, well, I just want more. Otherwise, I wouldn't be calling you, which is great. I understand. But if it's quantifiable, it's easier to measure. It's easier to understand what kind of resources need to go into getting that many cases. And you also want to think about your operational capacity in that too. If you just had five times more cases tomorrow, that probably wouldn't be good. What's the average case value? That helps us understand what an ROI is that makes sense. And then like the bonus question is, if you know what your desired ROI is, that's even better. And by ROI, just for everybody, return on investment. So, you know, how many dollars would you spend to make X dollars? That really helps because some marketing channels are going to be more expensive to acquire cases than others. They just might be more timely from a cash flow perspective. So those are the big things that I always think are good to know before making that call. And the more you have that information pinned down, the easier it is to compare apples to apples if you're having conversations with multiple vendors, because otherwise that's an easy way to get overwhelmed when someone just says, oh, we have five different packages. And it's like, if you're not clear about exactly how many things you need, how many cases you want that value the area, it makes it harder for the vendors to give you a good quote. Okay, so now we're ready for the phone call. What do I need to ask when I'm actually on the call with a marketing agency to make sure that I'm getting the best value and the best partner to work with me on that? Yeah, so the question to ask is really going to be about what marketing channels are going to be used to accomplish these goals? What are the pros and cons of them? So for example, if you call an agency or a vendor and you say, I'm looking to bring in cases for less than $1,000. Ideally, they're going to talk you through the various options that you have to make that happen and risks and rewards associated. So for example, somebody may say, you can achieve that goal with SEO, but it's going to take a while longer. You can achieve that goal with social media. Maybe that'll be more successful in the short term. You cannot achieve that goal in paid search because the market's too competitive. You really want to be walked through the channels that the agencies can help with to say what's good and bad about all these so you can make an informed decision. And ideally, your marketing vendor is talking about these things agnostically. They shouldn't be trying to push a product on you. They should be trying to work towards your outcome and finding which tactics are going to work to get you there versus saying, hey, here's product XYZ. It costs this amount of money. Because then you start getting into a really confusing situation of comparing proposals that don't really match outcomes. They're just scopes of work that somebody wants you to buy. 
That's a really good point. I know working as a freelancer, a lot of times clients would ask, well, how many hours do I get? Or how many things are you going to do? And it's really not about that, right? It's about what is the output and what is this going to get for you? So one other challenge they typically face is in tracking their investment. Have you found that there's kind of common challenges and solutions around tracking your investment when you're working with an agency? Yeah, that's a great point. And I think there are challenges on both sides from the vendor and from the attorney's perspective. So from the vendor perspective, in order to track things well, you really need to make sure that things are attributed to specific marketing channels or specific campaigns. Sometimes this can technically be outside of the wheelhouse of an agency. So you do want to make sure that you're working with someone who understands call tracking, attribution, things like that. So that's where it can go awry on that side. The other side is, you know, pointing the finger back at the firm of if the marketing agency gives you that information, what are you doing with it? Are you looking at what calls have come in, looking at what sources they've come from, and then saying that person hired us, and then running an analysis? The vendor should be a partner in helping with that, but there is some onus that needs to be placed on the firm to operationally go back and do that. Thanks so much for all of those tips. If you're looking for more support with marketing help, go to postali.com. That's P-O-S-T-A-L-I.com. Thanks so much. Hey, my name is Brad Stahlberg. I write, research, and coach on the art and science of performance and well-being, and I am the host of the new but growing Growth Equation podcast. Awesome. I'm excited to chat with you. Someone recommended your books that you've co-authored to me. I devoured both of them pretty quickly. And I want to kind of lead us in the direction of talking about one of those topics in particular from the passion paradox. Can you start off by kind of explaining how you would define passion? It's a word we hear all the time. It's thrown around out there. What do you define as passion? So I like to think about passion as a very strong enthusiasm or zeal toward a particular person or activity. And my writing on the topic has been for the latter category. So not so much romantic passion, but passion for an activity. Though, not surprisingly, the research shows that lots of the same things are occurring in the mind whether you are super passionate about a lover or super passionate about a career or a sport or some other pursuit. Perfect. One of the things that really jumped out to me is there's a lot of advice today about diving all in. And I found it really refreshing that you didn't advocate for those popular lines of ditch your day job, jump all in on your hobby or what you think is your dream business. So can you talk a little bit about when going all in isn't the right fit? Yeah, I'm so glad that you asked this question. I think that it's one of the bigger misconceptions around this word passion. Exactly what you said, all the um, the motivational, inspirational podcast and self-help gurus will tell you that you've got to immediately follow your passion and quit your day job and all that stuff that you mentioned. Well, what the research shows is actually the total opposite is the best way to get to success. And that is because if you do quit your day job to follow your passion, then suddenly you put a ton of pressure on yourself. And lots of individuals perform well under pressure, but the majority don't. And even for those individuals that do perform under pressure, you've got this issue where suddenly you need to monetize your passion. 
because you've quit your day job. So it actually makes you more risk averse than risk taking. Because if you are the blogger or the writer that decides to quit your job as an accountant to just write or blog full time, well, when it's time to pay for your groceries and for rent, you might have to resort to writing clickbait articles or you know, five ways to have your cat be cuter with a cat video. Stuff that get clicks because that's what's going to bring in a couple hundred dollars a week. But if you keep your day job, then you can truly pursue the things that you want to write about. You can take bigger risks. And as a result, you're more likely to enjoy your passion. And here's the kicker. Researchers found that five years in, people that keep their day jobs are over 40% more likely to actually have launched a successful business. Mm. So those that quit their day job to pursue their passion are less likely five years down the road, significantly less likely to be doing their passion full time. So what I pull from that is that not everything that you see as a hobby or something you could potentially enjoy has to become a business or a monetized aspect of your life. I think that's really important to keep in mind because we hear so much about entrepreneurship or side hustles or alternative forms of income. And sometimes it doesn't need to be pressurized in that way, or it doesn't need to be monetized. Now, our audience is mostly small firm and solo attorneys. And so in my mind, there's two ways you could potentially go wrong with this passion. Lawyers are notorious for working really hard and being so passionate about their work and what they do that they overwork. Mm -hmm. And then there's also that potential of some other creative project or some other business pulling their attention, but feeling like they can't really dive into that as a passion. I know in the book, you talk about the positive and negative paths of passion. So how do you kind of find that balance between not overworking and burning yourself out, but also leaving room for some of these new ideas to potentially come in? This is the crux of the difficulty for the very <laughs> driven person. Yeah, I mean, I'm married to a lawyer, so I get it that, that this audience probably fits that <laughs> type A internally driven temperament. So this leads me to a key theme in my other book, and actually the theme that I explore most on my podcast, The Growth Equation, which is just that. We call the podcast The Growth Equation. The idea is The Growth Equation. And what The Growth Equation says is that the way to get to growth, personal, professional, emotional, even organizational, is to stress yourself, have a period of rest where you recover, and then you get growth. And the way that I use stress is not the kind of stress that you might face before a performance review or when you're in an argument with your significant other. It's stress much more in a scientific sense. So some sort of stimulus that challenges you. So that can be deep work, that can be launching a business, that can be training for a marathon, that can be starting a band, that can be having a child, anything that really introduces a challenge into your life. And that's really good. You need stress to grow, but you also need rest because if you never rest and recover, then eventually you end up injured, sick, burnt out. This principle of stress plus rest equals growth, it's true for how the human body grows. So it's about the only way that you can train to become a better runner or to make a muscle bigger. It's true for creative growth. The vast, vast, vast majority of creative breakthroughs happen after a period of intense work followed by rest. Even on a micro scale, this is why people tend to have breakthrough ideas um, when they're in the shower or when they're out on a walk, right? Because that's a rest period. And it's also true for how relationships grow. 
So you look at whether it's a close friendship or an intimate partnership, couples, friends that take on challenges together, those relationships get really strong, but only if there's a period of reflection and recovery between challenges. Otherwise, if the relationship is just constantly bombarded with stress and challenges, it can get tiring and exhausted and fizzle out. But if you never introduce new challenges to a relationship, then it can get boring and complacent. And then the last example I'll give in my rant on the growth equation is how organizations grow. <laughs> so you look at an organization like Blockbuster or Kodak, and they did not do a great job of stressing themselves. They just stuck to their core product, even as the environment around them were changing. And as a result, they didn't grow. They got selected out. I put America Online very much in the same category. Right. Compare that with an Apple or Disney. So Apple started out as a desktop computer company. I don't think anyone thinks of Apple as a desktop computer company anymore. Right. Disney started out as a brick and mortar amusement park. Disney's largest revenue source now is a digital production company, Pixar. So both of those organizations, they stress themselves in the direction of growth, which for them meant product extensions, exploring new innovations, et cetera, et cetera. I love this because it's one of the things we talk about a lot at Lawyerist with the attorneys that we work with and who are in our community, because you have to strike that balance and not view the service that you offer as only the practicing of the law, the knowledge of the law, the application of how you assist a client, because people are thinking about how they interact with the law and with attorneys differently. And so that forces lawyers who want to stay ahead of the cusp to become one of the Disney's or the Apple's of the world to be rethinking the offerings that they have. I know you talk quite a bit about some of the things that you can be at risk for if you don't view your passion the right way. And I found this really helpful because a lot of the storytelling that we hear around passion is about how many times somebody had to fail or how long they had to stick with something before they were successful. And it breeds this idea of, okay, you just have to hustle, 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 and there is no period for that rest. Can you talk about how you can proactively manage that passion and build that time in there when we hear so many different things about it from other perspectives? So I think the first thing is that as a researcher that has developed a, a decent understanding of the science, the, you know, I'll sleep when I die, hustle, 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 grind, 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 that stuff sells really well. And it can be super motivating, but it's total crap. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> all of the research shows the importance of sleep, the importance of rest and recovery, and um, really the performance enhancing benefits of doing periods of highly intense, deeply focused work, followed by periods of rest and recovery, which is the total opposite of a grind. A grind mindset, you're kind of stuck in between. When I think of grinding, I think of like a gravel road and kind of gritty and just moving forward. Whereas when I think of a peak performer, I think of a sprinter that's going to go all out for a period of time, rest and recover, and then go all out again. So the first thing to clear up is that the science is unambiguous that working like the sprinter is better than just grinding. Now, how do you do that? Easy to intellectually understand, hard to make happen in your own life. A huge mindset shift that I think is super helpful is to stop thinking about those periods of rest and recovery as separate from your job, but to start thinking them as an integral part of your job. 
So conventional wisdom is if I take an hour out of my day to work out, do some kind of physical practice, if I go to bed at 1030 instead of midnight, then I'm sacrificing time I could otherwise be spending building my business or building my practice or thinking about a client issue. Whereas the shift in mindset is actually saying, no, if you want to build a great practice, if you want to be the best attorney for your clients, do that workout, go to bed an hour earlier, because once again, it's unambiguous that that workout is going to help you focus, is going to help you have creative thinking, is going to help you be present for your clients. There's all this research associated with physical activity, which even though it's activity, it's a great way to rest your brain. So I would consider physical activity a type of rest for someone that's otherwise just working with their mind. And then the same thing on sleep. Research shows that it's during your sleep that you store, connect, consolidate all the information you've been exposed to during the day. Now, here's the hiccup. If you are a workaholic and you are currently working 12 to 15 hours a day, or even, I don't know, 10 to 15 hours a day. I'm on the West Coast. So over here, a workaholic for like 10 <laughs> hours. On the East Coast, it's like 18. So however you define that. But if you feel like you're not taking enough time to do the rest part of the equation, at first, your performance is going to suffer. And you have to accept that. Because if you go from doing 13 hours of work a day to 11 hours of work a day, in the short term, that day, that week, probably even that month, you're going to have less output and you're going to feel like your performance is suffering. But in the long term, over the course of a year, a decade, an entire career, I can guarantee that your performance will improve. So the hardest thing for people to do when they're making the shift is to get over that short-term fear of, oh, I can't carve out 45 minutes to go on a walk because my performance is going to suffer today. But I want you to think about what will you feel like a year from now, a decade from now, because building that foundation of healthy habits of ways to rest and recover is so important. And you don't have to go in a sensory deprivation dunk tank or go to a tarot card reader or on a two-year silent meditation retreat. Like This is simply about getting enough sleep, having some time for exercise or gardening or some other kind of hobby that will help you, the entire person be stronger and be a more lasting, sustainable performer in your primary craft, which in this case is the law. Right. Is the distinction there that things that you can do, like getting more sleep, are more regular and become more of a routine? Whereas if you do something like, all right, I'm spending an hour in the sensory deprivation tank or spending a week at a silent meditation retreat, you kind of erode the benefits of that by coming back from that and immediately jumping back into the same schedule that you had before. I think so. I think that's exactly right. And you can use that stuff. It's like a Band-Aid. So you can say like, oh, I spent an hour in the sensory deprivation tank. Now I can crush myself for the next month. (laughs) I think the meditation retreat, and I know I'm the one that gave that example. I think that's a little different because you really can have like some insightful breakthroughs that then stick after. But it's this notion of like, oh, I'm just going to fix the problem by doing something instead of creating an overall routine that prioritizes rest. Now, by no means am I saying that you should just rest all day and then your practice is going to be great. Again, when I talk about rest, it's just eight hours of sleep and then some time for something that nourishes your mind-body system. It can be woodworking. Again, I think physical activity is a great way to do it, but physical activity doesn't mean going to the gym. It can be gardening. It can be going on a walk. 
just something where you allow your brain to turn off and you're using your body. And again, this makes you a better attorney. My guess is that your listeners have all had that experience of being out on a walk or working on something in their garage or doing some kind of creative art project. And then suddenly they have a breakthrough thought that relates to their work as an attorney. And that's a very real experience. In researching for peak performance, the first book that I wrote with my co-author, we learned that over 40% of breakthrough ideas happen not when you're working on the thing where you have the idea about, but when you're working on something else. I think, though, it is so important to stress that I'm not saying that you should just chill and you know live this perfectly balanced life and watch your favorite TV show and be a great parent and be a great marathon runner and sleep 10 hours a night. I'm simply saying you want to go all in on your law practice. That's awesome. It's fulfilling. It makes you tick. Do it. Just make sure that you're protecting time to sleep, to have an outlet that is separate from that. And then if you are in a relationship or you do have a family, make sure that you're communicating how you're spending your energy and you're spending some time there too. Great tips. We're going to pause to take a break to hear from some of our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll talk about how you balance this with being an extreme achiever. Support for today's episode comes from Back Office Betty's, the only virtual receptionist service exclusively dedicated to small law firms that offers a plan with unlimited calls. Their highly specialized service boasts customized call handling, relentlessly friendly team members, and unmatched quality. The Bettys are ready to help you grow your firm, even when you're out of the office. Visit backofficebettys.com lawyerist to try them out for one week free. Use the promo code podcast to receive $150 off your first month. Looking for a true alternative to LexisNexis or Westlaw? You could save thousands this year if you switched to Case Text. Over 6,000 law firms from solos to 40% of the AM Law 100 use Case Text to help them find better results in less time and for less money. For $65 per month, you'll get access to 50 state and federal case law, statutes, and more with zero out-of-plan fees. Try the Smarter Legal Research platform. Lawyerist podcast listeners can go to casetext.com slash lawyerist to try case text for free for two weeks. Text Expander boosts your business productivity by allowing your team to communicate smarter, faster, and more consistently across all your channels. This app is built with collaboration in mind. You don't have to reinvent common email and message replies every time you need them. Store them in Text Expander instead. Use your snippets anywhere you type, Slack, Trello, Google Docs, email, web browsers, any place you frequently type the same things. Text Expander for Teams makes it easy to manage and share snippets across your entire company. And Text Expander is available for Mac, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, and iPad. Lawyerist Podcast show listeners will get 20% off their first year. Visit textexpander.com podcast to learn more. Okay, we're back, and everything you're saying makes complete sense to me. What I think is really interesting is that a lot of people who are typically practicing in the law or handling other sort of high-stress or business ownership situations is they're the ones who are going to be the most resistant to building those things in because they have that extreme achiever personality and this idea of taking the time for something that doesn't contribute towards 
growing their practice or accomplishing their to-do list or expanding revenue is going to feel like it's actually pulling away from that goal. One of the things you talked about in the book is that these extreme achiever personalities, the more kind of dopamine from that rush that they need to feel good, the more willing they are to strive harder for things, even if it ends up being detrimental to them to do that. So can you talk about that balance if you have that extreme achiever personality between being passionate and being careful not to go too far? Like, is there a way to start building this into your schedule where it feels doable and is still beneficial? Well, I think the biggest shift, and I'm going to echo something I said in the first part of our conversation, is that your performance isn't going to suffer in the long term. So I think it's just the biggest shift is taking a long-term view. So asking yourself, what's it going to take for me to be the best attorney for the next 20 years? And most people get that it's not pulling all-nighters and working 16-hour days because deep down inside, they feel that that's unsustainable. So I'd say that the first thing is making that long-term shift. Then I think the second thing is this. So if you are a really passionate, driven type A person, there's two ways to handle this passion. The first way is to try to become more chill and more zen. So that is relaxation techniques, practices like meditation, things that you are literally doing to try to become more content. The second way to manage it is to accept that, hey, I'm a really driven, passionate person. I know that this is like rocket fuel, but it's also pretty fragile. And if I let it control me, I'm in trouble. So to get really deliberate on how you're focusing your energy and your passion. And I don't think it's an either or. I think you've got to work on both ends of that spectrum. So I think it's very beneficial for type A people to try to become a little bit more relaxed and content. But I think it's completely unreasonable to say that if you're wired as a pusher, that suddenly you're going to become a Zen monk. I think that that like almost never works. So it's about not only trying to become a little more content, but also just accepting like, hey, I'm super wired. I'm very passionate. I'm a pusher. It's a gift. I love the thrill and the energy of my work and of building a practice and the pride that comes with it. But it's also a curse because it could lead me to get overworked, to burn out, to have a marriage get ruined. So it's about just acknowledging that, hey, this is how I'm wired. It's not good or bad. It just is. The more self-aware I can be of how I use that drive, the better off the long-term result. And one of the things that I think we can easily fall into that trap over is using what you thought was passion, but balancing that with the output of the external validation. And so the challenge around figuring out how long to rest, I think comes up, especially when you have a big achievement or a devastating failure. I know that a lot of the references in the book are around athletes. And I found those to be really helpful, even though I'm not an athlete myself. You use a 24-hour rule with athletes. Do you have recommendations around someone who is a business owner or a practicing attorney, how they can figure out what does the rest look like for me when I've hit one of these major milestones, wrapped up a huge case, or after I've had some type of failure or struggle? I'm so glad you mentioned it. So the 24-hour rule, it basically states that after you have a really, really big success or a really, really bad defeat, you give yourself 24 hours. And 24 hours is arbitrary. It can be 48 hours. It can be 72 hours. You give yourself some set period of time to celebrate the success or grieve the defeat 
So you're either feeling really good about yourself, you're looking at Twitter because your podcast is crushing, or you're taking all the calls from the other lawyers at your firm about how you, you crushed it. Or in the case of a failure, you're feeling really crappy, you're spending the day in bed, you're questioning why you're doing what you're doing, you're grieving. But then after 24 to 72 hours, get back to doing the work itself. Because there's something about doing the work itself that after a big win is very humbling because you realize that, oh crap, like it's still pretty hard to do this work. Mm-hmm. And after a big loss, it's really inspiring because you say, okay, now I'm actually back at doing the thing. I'm no longer worrying or feeling sad about the thing. I'm doing it. And there's something about doing the work that puts all that other stuff in perspective. And this is a huge paradox on burnout. So yes, burnout can happen from doing too much work. That's very real. But something else that's very real that's not nearly discussed as often is that sometimes burnout isn't about hours worked, but it's about what that work is. So the person that spends a lot of time feeling really good about success or really bad about defeats, but counts that as work, they're significantly more likely to end up burnt out than the person that's actually doing their craft. And anyone that's ever used any tool where there's a lot of external validation understands this. The more time you spend focus on the metrics, on the outcomes, in a very like superficial case in social media, the more time you spend looking at your retweets, likes, comments, ratings, whatever, the crappier you feel. The more time you spend actually doing the work, the better you feel. So for me as an author, I deal with this all the time. This is about my propensity to want to check the sales ranks of my book. You might face this as a podcaster to see how many people are downloading your podcast. And you can spend a lot of time kind of getting into a cycle where you're really caring about that and thinking about that. And at the end of those days, you probably tend to feel more drained and emotionally exhausted than the days that you're actually doing the work of writing a book, thinking about prepping for recording a podcast. So again, I know I've kind of rambled on on this question, but I think it's such a key to remember that burnout isn't just about hours worked. It's also about, are you on an emotional roller coaster of external validation? Or are you accepting that stuff for what it is, but spending most of your time and energy actually doing the thing that you enjoy doing? It's like, don't be Lance Armstrong. He's such a good example of someone that got so kind of sucked up in the web of external validation and and needing to be the man. And as a result, he became despondent and cheated. And I'm really glad you took us here because the approach that you have on goal setting was like mic drop moment when I read through this, because we're all guilty of this, where we set these massive goals and put these big things on us, whether it's in our personal life, something we're trying to achieve, or as part of a team, we talk about our quarterly goals or our annual goals. You talk about focusing only on the steps to the goal and not the goal. So can you expand a little bit more about why that distinction is so important? So you set a big goal and that's great and can be really helpful and inspiring. But once you have that big goal, (laughs) it can be pretty overwhelming and discombobulating. So if your goal is to start a practice that does like, I don't know, $6 million in billable hours or whatever that huge number is. And then on day two, you're at zero dollars in billable hour. (laughs) It's pretty easy to get overwhelmed and to think that that's so far down the road and then to lose motivation. Whereas if you set that big goal and then you say, okay, 
what's the five-year plan? What are the steps to get there? What are the incremental monthly milestones, six-month milestones, yearly milestones? And then you largely forget about that big goal. You'll spend less time worrying about achieving it and more time actually focused on the steps involved in the process to get you there. So it's really good to set a big goal, but then it's equally important to completely forget about it. And the more you focus on the process, the more that outcome is going to take care of itself. Because the human brain is fascinating. We're really good at convincing ourselves that thinking about achieving an outcome is the same thing as doing the work to actually achieve it. But those are very different things. And the thinking about an outcome generally makes us anxious, whereas the doing the work generally fulfills us. That's so important because it's something we've even seen within our team here at Lawyerist. We work on a quarterly rock system where everybody has quarterly projects or outcomes that they're accountable for. And what we all saw, and when I started, what I fell victim to as well, is sometimes you can lose track of where you're at as you're moving towards that goal if you don't break it down. And so you can feel behind, like in the example you mentioned, or you can get almost to the end of your timeline for something and realize, oh, wow, in order to meet this, I'd actually have to dedicate every working hour to this over the next two weeks to be able to say that it's checkmark done. And so breaking down those goals into all of the smaller steps, I love that. And what I took away from our conversation is to forget about the bigger goal, because as you're doing the work that's building you up there, you know you're headed there anyways, but you're not feeling so pressurized about that big goal, because it really becomes about the steps and it becomes a lot more manageable. I can't tell you how many times I've been guilty of write dissertation as an action item Mm -hmm. on my to-do list. And it's like, Laura, that's setting you up for failure every single time because that is a massive project. And then I just get stressed about not having made any progress towards it too. So I think that's a really important thing we just talked about there. Yeah, I think it's so important. And then the simple way that I like to think of it, it's just like process over outcomes. Yeah. So the more you focus on the process, the more the outcomes take care of themselves. Yeah. The more you focus on the outcomes, the less likely you are to actually spend time in the process. That's absolutely powerful. Well, Brad, thank you so much for the opportunity to get to learn from you. I recommend both of your books to our audience quite strongly. Thanks again for coming on the show and talking me through all this. Yeah, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on the show. And then the one thing I'll add is in addition to the books, and I think I mentioned this, but um, starting a new podcast called The Growth Equation that explores some of these topics in a conversational way. Awesome. The Lawyers Podcast is produced by Laura Briggs and edited by Christopher Ng. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discuss here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Well, here are your first two steps. If you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free right now at lawyers.com book. Next, if you're looking for help beyond the book, then let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyers.com community to schedule a 15-minute call with our community manager. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.